Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the best of my Times Radio Show Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. But we have exciting news from next week. You're going to get the podcast not four days a week, but five days a week, uh, which is obviously handy because some of you I know are going back to commuting and that sort of thing. So from next week... The show will be Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, and then you'll get the podcast uh, shortly after. Very exciting news. But if you've got any ideas of things we could do to fill three hours on the radio and another, uh, what, 35, 40 minutes on the podcast, do get in touch in the normal way, matt.jolly at times.radio. Also, let me know where you are listening, just because it's always nice to know uh, where you're listening. Today's uh, listener in an exotic location is... Tim Hansing, who gets in touch to say, love listening to your podcast to keep up to date with interesting news about dear old Blighty whilst walking home from work in Bangkok and at weekends on my yacht in Phuket. Ooh, posh. We've got listeners who own yachts in Phuket. There we are. Let me know where you're listening. You can uh, email me, matt.cholly at times.radio. Right, coming up on the podcast today, a space special. The uh, European Space Agency is advertising for astronauts. So to find out what it takes to become an astronaut, I was put into a centrifuge by the UK Space Agency to experience the G-force of going into space. You'll uh, So you'll hear uh, that coming up uh, next on the podcast. But first, it's our communist panel today with Angela Epstein and James Marion. But actually, before we get on and talk about the, uh, what we've planned to talk about, what, what, would, what would be the one thing that you would take into space, James? Well, I was thinking about this and I'm obsessed with space and I thought I'd know. And I ended up realising that uh, your last guy, the space expert, who was almost talking about how cold it was, so maybe a jumper. <laughs> you might need more than that. <laughs> Minus 90 on Mars. Two jumpers. That's properly cold. I mean, that, it's been, it, that's even colder than it's been the last few nights. Um, Angela, what would you take to space if you could only take one thing? I'd take loads of... My favourite thing is chopped liver being a nice Jewish girl, which is we have in great quantity on a Friday night. And I always feel really guilty about um, about having too much of it. But in space, no one can hear you gorge. So I'd just take it with me. <laughs> Of all the things I asked both astronauts I spoke to, I asked them about the food, and neither of them mentioned an oversupply of chopped liver. So I think that would be a first uh, to uh, to take into space. Oh, that's very good. That's very good. Right, let's talk about. I love this story. Even the boss of Zoom has got Zoom fatigue. I think we can all uh, relate to that, can't we, James? No, not at all. I, I kind of liked Zoom. I mean, I always feel a bit left out when everyone moans about how much they've gone Zoom all the time, because I don't think anyone ever really wanted to Zoom call me that much. Um, so I just, it's a nice way of going to a meeting and being able to uh, read the Times or uh, do a Sudoku, which is my new obsession in the background, which you can't do in a normal meeting. And you sort of pleasantly zone out, people witter on. I don't know, but then I haven't been to that many Zoom meetings. I think I'm the one person who's been left out of the Zoom revolution, really. What about you, Angela? Are you, are you, have you got Zoom fatigue? I've got absolute Zoom fatigue. I mean, part of the problem with Zoom is it can, unlike meetings, it compels you to look at yourself. And for some reason, maybe it's just my computer, I always look like I've just been sucking on a haddock or something. So you've got that <laughs> odd pursed look about you. You're grey and grainy and, and you, you know, somebody's wittering on, you know, with all the best intentions about something very noble that you're supposed to be invested in. And you're just thinking... God, my roots look like a bird just splatted on my head. So um, you've got that kind of visual distraction. Obviously, I'm an immensely shallow person. But equally, I just think uh, on a more sort of serious note, I think human contact, um, without wishing to sound too uh, sort of noble, is all about spark generating ideas. 
you know, looking at body language, looking at visual clues. Um, and it's so hard to do that on Zoom. It's very exhausting mentally to sort of try and pick up the other clues beyond language um, to give us sort of an idea of what we're talking about. And the other thing is that if you're, I, I've got a PhD in nosiness. So <laughs> when you're Zooming, when you're Zooming with somebody, um, you're just thinking, I mean, the bookshelf thing is so overdone. Let's not even bore ourselves with that. But I remember doing it. I was doing a broadcasting thing and, and a footballer was Zooming in from somewhere. And I just thought, wow, his cushions, they are so nice. Um, and uh, you just you don't really get distracted by cushions and soft furnishings when you're in, in real time, do you? The thing about seeing yourself is actually like experts. I think even at Stanford University identified that it does actually make you more tired. If you are the effect of seeing yourself in real time is one of the the sort of I think it confuses the brain. I'm saying this having sitting in the Times Radio studio, looking up at a big screen showing the camera on me with a slight <laughs> delay, which is even more annoying because uh, every time I sort of I, I sort of move my hand around and then two seconds later it looks like someone's waving at me. I find it very distracting, which is why it's so so mentally exhausting being on the uh, being on the radio. Are you looking forward to being back? I mean, it's very nice, James. You are in the studio. It's nice. It's much nicer being in person, isn't it, than being on Zooms? Reluctantly, yes, this is much nicer. I've also started getting this thing as more people go back into the office, I found myself on a couple of Zoom calls where I'm the only person at home and everyone else is Zooming me from the office and it makes me feel a bit left out. So I feel more in the thick of things. I, I, I don't miss my commute. I don't miss my 45-minute walk into work. It's always boring. I don't miss the way that it makes me buy pastries every morning because I wake up stressed and tired and I think, oh, I'll have an almond croissant. Then you have almond croissants five days a week. Uh, whereas at home, I tend to eat, I just tend to have a nice yogurt and some fruit. So I'm probably going to get significantly, um, significantly fatter, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, the human company is good. I did a ver I was, um, it's very weird in the Times newsroom at the moment because although there are people in, they're not having in-person meetings. So the other day I went down and I saw someone I wanted to speak to and went up and started sort of waving at them stupidly and they made clear that they were on a Zoom. So I walked over to someone else and sort of annoyed them and, made, and then it turned out they were on a Zoom. And basically I went around the entire newsroom and everyone in there was on a meeting with each other, <laughs> which I went up pulling stupid faces and poking them and all of that. And so, yeah, uh, you don't get that. If there's a, if, whereas if they're all in one room together, I'd know to leave them alone. Uh, now, Angela, you've written um, for The Telegraph about a slightly different aspect of uh, all of this, what we are living through uh, right now, about why it is that we can... Uh, get our nails done, we can go and have a pint, albeit still outside at the moment, but the whole working from home thing, you've really had enough of it. I really, really have. I mean, I recognise, and it's quite a class divide thing, and I'm, I'm not one of these kind of social class warriors, um, but, um, but I do think there's a big difference between having a sort of a nice plush garden when the weather's nice and you can feel the grass between your toes and you can sit with your laptop, and being in a flat share where your workspace, living space, bedroom space, you know, is all one small confined area, and you're compelled to, to work from home. Uh, and it's a really miserable experience, and I don't understand why... Um, we're being so slow, there's kind of this slow snail pace crawl back to normality when there are other things that we can do and interface with people and yet can't go back to the office. Bearing in mind that so many offices, and I'm doing a little bit of that, I mean, I'm a freelancer, so I dip in and out of different people's corporate spaces, depending on what the cakes are like. And um, and the thing is that, I, you know, a lot of offices have spent an absolute fortune. I'm sure the Times is, is no different from many corporate uh, situations where there's one-way systems, 
rooms and there are screens and they've done all this stuff. And yet still we're told not to go back to the office. Meanwhile, the G7 summit goes ahead face to face um, and, you know, including people flying in from India, you know, where, you know, tragically the, the virus is on the rampage and, and we know that the delegates are now in isolation. But we are we are so on point with the vaccination programme now. It was supposed to be the passport out of all of this. And and why can't why can't we just get on with it? And, and, and on a lighter note, I would say, uh, Matt and James, there's, uh, there are sort of hangovers from working from home as well. My, my daughter identified this one. If it becomes a phenomenon, I want you to to know you heard this here first she says people go to the loo far more when they work from home because they know they don't have to trek far and so you're starting to train your bladder to want to go more often which can actually be a problem when you're out on the motorway doing other things that's a really interesting uh and also i suppose it, it, it's sort of um in your subconscious it's the one reason you have to get up and you sort of think oh, i'll get up and stretch my legs and you go and stretch your legs and then <laughs> Having done you know, earlier this year, I was doing the show from from home for about three months. It was in the end, and that was you know that was the only reason I basically got out of the chair for three hours. <laughs> you see, you see, you heard it here first, Matt. We can patent this lockdown loo syndrome. Well, there we are. But what are we, what are we patenting then? So what? Pan, like adult, more adult nappies for the for, for I, office I think, workers. I think- I think there is a whole world of, of commercial gain there. I think we're going to have to brainstorm with Alan Sugar or somebody and see just, you know, as, they, as with all toilet things, it will run and run. <laughs> for uh, these well, prices. I'll set for up, these prices. I'll set up a what? Zoom. I'll set up a Zoom and we'll brainstorm. <laughs> we'll brainstorm. Uh, James, I want to talk about your, your piece as well. You, you've written about how sort of our morals are being shaped by big companies and corporations in a slightly weird way. Yeah, I just think it's kind of interesting because I was sort of thinking about, you know, where we get our moral beliefs from and what, where we get what we think is good and bad from. And once upon a time, I guess we've been part of religious communities, a, you know, a church or something um, that would have shaped how we were, you know, our sexual morals, um, what we felt we could say. Uh, the government used to intervene a lot more, used to be able to be pros- prosecuted for obscenity. And I was kind of thinking that what's happened now is the only people who ever really talk to us about morality and the only people who have any power over how we behave morally are our employers. Um, and you can do things that, you know, it's quite common at work now that you might go for training about, you know, diversity or um, you, there might be Mental Health Awareness Week. And the people, you know, explaining to you how to be a good person, the people who punish you for not being a good person um, is now really your employer. And I just thought that was really interesting and um, I was talking to some kind of social historians of 20th century and they they were saying it's basically kind of unprecedented in the last sort of I don't know 70 years of our history that um, you would you would go to it you'd expect to talk about you know issues of morality in your workplace but in the last kind of 10 years or so with the rise of things like sort of diversity workshops and you know you might get invited to a workshop on toxic masculinity in the workshop in the in the workplace um there's suddenly been this kind of revolution where suddenly our employees are talking to us about morality. And I think that's probably a wider symptom of the way that work has just invaded our lives more and more and more. And it's, you know, it's more part of our identity. And now we're kind of looking for our employers to help us work out um, how to behave was the thrust of my column. Um, and you make the point that maybe in the past, our morals might have been shaped by the church and religion and, you know, it, across the UK, that, that, that has fallen away. And I suppose there's also this sort of, media for where you get and social media when when a company is found to have a bad person within it they get very worried about the reputation 
hit they take. So there's sort of, well, if we just train everyone to be good people, we won't have any reputational impact. But it's a very strange... Yeah. Uh, you know, I suppose it's partly the motivation of why are companies doing it? Is it to make a better society or just so that one of their employees isn't revealed to be a, quote, bad person? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty cynical. And I think the kind of danger is that if you have companies that are just, you know, frantically and uh, in a slightly panicked way trying to protect their, their um, reputations from a social media storm, and you're the person who ends up... Um, getting 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 punished for it um then that is quite a dangerous person to have sort of policing your moral behavior because um it's a kind of reactive um way of doing it that isn't necessarily logical or, or, or always fair i mean there's a good example uh, a kind of famous example now of um a truck driver a guy called emmanuel cafferty in the u.s who was uh fired from his company after he was um tricked into making a i think like a white supremacist hand gesture in a video that subsequently went viral he didn't really know what he was doing but by the time this is all over the internet, the company was terrified about its reputation being dragged through the mud. They just sort of, they just let him go. And um, I don't know, I think we might, I don't know, we might want someone acting more fairly over the kind of moral consequences we might face, I guess, was my kind of ultimate take. And I suppose, Andrew, the interesting thing about this, based on what we were just talking about as well, working from home, Zooms from home and all that, you know, although more people will go back to the office, it won't be the same as it ever was before. So you've suddenly got sort of your employer sort of telling you how to behave in your own house, uh, training you to be a, a different sort of person. You know, it's a very weird situation to be in, isn't it? Well, it, it's interesting. Yes, absolutely. Because one of the things that Eric Ewan said, obviously he's the founder of Zoom, who ironically has said that he's tired of Zoom meetings, is is that, you know, you need to be back in the office to preserve corporate culture in order to sort of all align yourself with the with the knowledge that you resent, represent the, cult, the company for what it, you know, what it stands for. What I find a bit bleak and dispiriting about, about uh, this whole subject, I mean, you know, James wrote a fantastic column on this because it really sort of highlights the chasm that exists now um, in our in our world without, you know, wishing to sound too too much like I'm being preachy. Um, but if you obviously we no longer, <laughs> which is always the byword for there's some preaching coming up, gang. Um, uh, <laughs> stand back and let the preacher free through. Um, there's obviously um, there are there are people are guided by their religion. Um, thankfully, the government no longer tells us what age we can do certain things. Um, but surely all this starts in the home. Um, and, the, you know, the bleak thing is that, that obviously there's a lot of unfortunately dysfunctional family life. People are under all sorts of pressures. People don't live in ideal domestic situations. But you would have thought by the time you hit the age to join a company, i.e. you're in adulthood, some things would be ingrained in your sort of your moral fibres. So you would know that it was wrong to treat people in a certain way, that sexism, racism, sexual objectification of women, all of these things are not acceptable as human human beings and why suddenly did the did, did big corporate concerns become sort of the arbiters of of our morality it's i find it astonishing that if i work for company x i need to be told that i shouldn't belittle somebody because they're you know the color of their skin or be, because of their gender uh, and i find it absolutely astonishing that that we've reached this situation yeah, no, it, is a, it is a very strange, but I suppose in a, it, maybe it's a reflection of the fact that in the past, maybe corporations, uh, you know, big big companies turned a blind eye to the behaviour of staff because they were bringing in the money or they were, you, you know, that was the culture and, you know, the bosses were probably part of the culture as well. And now, you know, that not acceptable that, that suddenly yes and you've got your but we your... have legislation we have That's legislation true. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely you know it shouldn't we do we you know if somebody is behaving in a way that contravenes legislation which has existed hitherto to protect 
workers' rights and all these other things, then that's where you have recourse to, you know, to go if, if you have a complaint. It shouldn't be, oh, the company needs to prop it up too, in, in my very humble opinion. Angela Epstein and James Marriott there. Right, coming up next, have I got what it takes to go into space? You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, as the European Space Agency advertises for astronauts, what happened when I found out if I've got what it takes to go into space? Astronaut name. Matt Chorley. Occupation. Times Radio presenter. Qualifications. Well, I've got an A, a B and a C at A-levels, although I realise that a detailed knowledge of the outbreak of World War II and Midsummer Night's Dream in half of Plato's Republic might not actually be very useful when hurtling to space. Having said that, I know that Tim Peake only got C, D, E in his A-levels, so... Temperament. Well, I know that going into space means being trapped in cramped conditions with people you barely know who might be incredibly annoying, but I used to rent in London, so I should be fine. It might look like we're driving through the Lincolnshire countryside, but this is in fact Florida. I am Neil Armstrong driving towards Cape Canaveral to achieve liftoff as an astronaut. That's that's sort of what's going on in my mind. There's obviously fewer alligators on the side of the road. So the, yes, yeah, so the European Space Agency is advertising for astronauts. Uh, I thought we would just do an interview with someone from the UK Space Agency and instead they said we'd like to put you in a centrifuge so that is where we're heading now uh, on our way to RAF Cranwell where they normally test fighter pilots and test pilots and that sort of thing and instead they're going to put me in essentially a big metal sausage and then spin me round at high uh, speed and uh, they are going to let me experience probably not the full whack that you know your Tim Peake or your Neil Armstrong might have got, uh, because I might pass out if that happens. So with some trepidation, we're heading to RAF Cranwell to be spun round in the name of trying to find out what it takes to be an astronaut. Fly me to the moon, let me play. Among the stars, let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. So here we are then, RAF Cranwell, in the beautiful uh, Lincolnshire countryside, and we're going straight into uh, the safety briefing before we can even get into the centrifuge. My name is Dr. Ollie Bird, Dr. Ollie. I'm one of the docs who contributes to the uh, hygiene training here at uh, Cranwell's. Uh, you'll be on the centrifuge, each, each be on the centrifuge for about 10 or 15 minutes, um, working up through a succession of G levels. Tell us if you feel sick. The survival equipment fitters will make sure that you have sick bags in there. They then showed us a series of videos of highly trained fighter pilots passing out as a result of the G force they were under and going into spasms, which they helpfully called the funky chicken and you can see that um, there's no prizes for beautiful faces in centrifuges <laughs> um, uh, it is a very physical act and you find even after being there for 10 minutes it's quite physically draining um, and it has to be and if you don't feel tired at the end of it there's something seriously wrong now the centrifuge RF Cranwell looks almost exactly like the one in Moonraker it simulates the gravity force you feel when shot into space you're absolutely right Mr Bond it's as simple as that 
I wasn't actually in a space rocket, though. I was in the cockpit of a Hawk fighter jet used for training RAF pilots. One of the cockpits is installed on the centrifuge. There's a virtual reality screen in front of me, which made me think I was flying across the Welsh countryside. So all I had to do when they tilted the plane and inflicted the G-force on me was not pass out, which is very straightforward, as Doc Ollie explained. You can apply pressure through the rudder pedals symmetrically to generate that muscle tensing. You can curl your toes to bring in the calf muscles. You can imagine you've got a basketball between your knees that you're trying to squeeze the air out of. You're trying to crack the walnut with your bottom and crunching your abdomen. Right? So it's a push, it's a curl, it's a squeeze, it's a crack and it's a crunch. And you can add in some crack on pop if you want to. And you have to do all of that just for getting up to 4G for about 15 seconds. Once you go higher, you also need to force the blood to your heart. This take means taking very short, sharp breaths and then holding it in for three seconds, which means you're basically doing it while looking like a bulldog swallowing a wasp. This is how it should sound when Doc Ollie does it. I mean, honestly, it was like patting your head and rubbing your stomach while also cutting your toenails and writing a dissertation in French. Thanks very much. We've just had quite a detailed uh, briefing, but apparently before we can go in the centrifuge, we've got to eat cake, which is the best instruction uh, I think we could have had so far. It's all to do with sugar levels and, and that sort of thing. It's quite a while since I've had breakfast. I'm, fe I'm feeling like there's a lot of things to remember all at once, but it will be okay. We'll find out how I actually got on once I got into the centrifuge in a moment. But first, I was joined at RAF Cranwell by Libby Jackson, Head of Human Exploration, very cool job title, at the UK Space Agency. And I sat down with the list of criteria that the European Space Agency are looking for with the application process this month to see how many of the boxes I could tick. So, Libby, I've got the list of criteria in front of me of uh, to apply to be an astronaut with the ESA. Citizen of an ESA member or associate member state, I qualify for that, don't I? Yeah, yeah the UK is still a uh, European Space Agency member state and that is always worth noting after we've left the EU. Brexit's made sure. no difference to my ability to become an astronaut. Not at all. Right. Uh, a master's degree or higher in natural sciences. Now, that is an issue because I don't have a degree at all. Okay. Will that count against me? Unfortunately so. So what, what, what is it that you need a master's degree in? Astronauts are highly trained individuals who, once up in space, will be helping over 250 experiments take place. So we need them to have an understanding of what's going on and the, the technical abilities uh, to be able to do that. And the European Space Agency have decided that the sort of best way to, to make sure that you've got that basic technical scientific abilities is, is to request that master's degree. So to know my way around a Bunsen burner for my GCSE is not enough, is that what you're saying? Ideally, we would like them to have <laughs> higher, higher scientific knowledge. Um, now, in terms of the other things, there's three years relevant professional postgrad experience. I mean, I don't think I've got that. Um, fluent in English, I can tick that one. Mm -hmm. Um, strong motivation, ability to cope with the regular working hours, frequent travel, long absences from home, family and regular social life. I mean, that is just being a journalist. Flexible with regards to place of work, inside or outside your... Presumably that's also partly in space. 
is a key requirement. You will be working in space for, for a number of months at a time. Um, calm under pressure. I mean, I think I, can, I think I can do that. And willing to participate in life science experiments. Are you basically asking me to be a guinea pig? Yes. To do what? Life science experiments are really important. When humans go into space, they essentially get old really quickly. Their bones and their muscles get weaker, their skin changes, their eyesight changes. By studying what happens to the astronauts as they spend time in space, we learn about the human body, we learn about how ageing works, and all of that helps us all live longer and better lives with, with the knowledge that's gained. And so astronauts have saliva, urine, blood taken, most days, you know, muscle biopsies, all sorts of things, all to help us better understand how human bodies work. So I've got, I've got six out of eight, but you're still saying that I'm not going to go through to the next round. What I would say to anyone is if they meet the essential criteria and they think they've got what it takes, they should have a go. They shouldn't let themselves decide. They should let the European Space Agencies decide. These opportunities only come round every 10 years or so. So give it a go. You don't have to have um, any piloting experience. You don't have to have knowledge of the space sector, though I would guess that it would help as you get through to the later rounds. Um, but yeah, you, you can be actually now even older. Previous rounds, they had an age limit of about 40. This is now saying you can be up to 50. Um, really trying to make sure that we have the widest, most diverse pool of applicants. And for the first time, there's a parallel project, feasibility study, looking at para-astronauts, people with disabilities to become an astronaut for the first time. So it's great to see that. So what's the sort of profile of who you'd really like to, if someone's listening to this and thinking, oh yeah, I, I always quite like being, I'd be an astronaut. I might think of the last time round, it was about 16, 17% were women. It's quite a blokey thing being an astronaut. You're right. The last, so the last time around, there were it was 16 or 17 percent of people applied were female, and we ended up with one female astronaut in the six selected. We'd really love to see that much more reflective of society. So, is it possible that one of these people, if, assuming I don't get through, but if some of the others do get through, one of them could end up on Mars? Yes, I, I think from uh, it will depend on their age, and it will depend on how long it takes us to get to Mars. Um, certainly, this group have a chance um, of one day going to the moon. Um, we're going to go to the moon to learn about how humans can live and work outside the protection of the magnetic field that, that protects us all from the cosmic rays that bombard us every day um, from the sun. Uh, that will be the next step. There will then be the political will, economic will and all these things to push us onto Mars. So when that's going to happen, it will be a few decades time. But there is a chance that these people might be a part of those missions. Is there life on Mars? That was Libby Jackson, Head of Human Exploration at the UK Space Agency. Up next, we find out how I got on when I went in the centrifuge to experience some of the G-force that astronauts face when they go into space. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. The European Space Agency is currently advertising for astronauts from across Europe. Sadly, I don't necessarily have all the qualifications, but I'm hoping to persuade them to let me in by demonstrating that I can withstand the G-force, or at least some of it, that astronauts face when they're fired into space. So this is the moment as I headed down to the centrifuge at REF Cranwell to boldly go where no Times radio presenter has been before.
So we'll set up for the first event, which is going to be familiarisation with the flight model and the uh, motion. Okay, Matt, so yeah, try and keep your head still, using your gaze to look out of the window. If you're responding yes and no, verbalise those comments rather than nodding and shaking your head. Uh, you'll soon find out why if you, uh, if you move your head. So yes, I was told off before we'd even really got going. At this point, the, the centrifuge is uh, spinning, but at 1.6 G. So 1 G is what you experience normally on Earth. So there was a slight bit of heaviness, but once I was sitting in the centrifuge, the screen in front of me showing the uh, pilot's view from the, the Hawk aircraft, it, it just felt like uh, normal. Right, lesson learned. So the aim of this event is just familiarisation and a little bit of desensitisation over a couple of minutes with some gentle turns under um, Simon's, uh, Simon's direction and guidance. Uh, the centrifuge is limited to 2.5, so there should be no need for an anti-G strain and manoeuvre. Any questions for me? No, all good. Here we go. Exciting. So you see uh, rolling in, as I described, and we get a lot of bank, so 50 degrees angle bank, and then I'm just going to squeeze the G. <laughs> And so I'm releasing that G gently, and I'm going to roll it out slowly. <laughs> oh yeah, that that is quite heavy on the old arms and jowls. Yeah. <laughs> it's just just two and a half. Again, I'll release the G, then roll out uh, nice and gently. Okay, uh, Matt. Any significant motion symptoms for you? No, I can feel my fat cheeks a bit, but apart from that, all fine. Uh, I can't do anything about that, I'm afraid. <laughs> So we will move on to the next event, which is going to be your grey out demo. I'll speak to you again and talk about that once we've set up for it up here. So a quick word about G-Force. Apollo astronauts experienced about four Gs on the Saturn rocket, while astronauts on the space shuttle got about three G when they were lifting off. Although whether or not you're sitting upright or lying down makes a difference, apparently. So apparently it's much tougher being an astronaut than uh, doing what I'm doing. 1G is the weight of gravity upon the human body on Earth. 2G is double that, 3G three times that, and so on. And what it means in practice, when I was sitting in the cockpit, the pressure of the G-force forces the blood away from the heart and into the lower body. So to get the blood back to the heart again, you have to tense every possible muscle, your toes, your ankles, your knees, your bum, and your abdomen, pushing the blood back to the heart in order that your circulation continues. That will come in a moment. First, they told me to do nothing for an exercise known as a grey out. Not a total blackout, just the loss of vision caused by a lack of oxygen in the brain. Some people get tunnel vision, others start to see stars. This is what happened to me. Okay, um, Matt, this is your grey out demo. It's the only time this afternoon I'm going to ask you to remain relaxed in your chest and legs from the outset of the G, uh, tensing your legs bottom and abdomen with the onset of any light loss. But start relaxed, and then with the onset of any light loss, muscle tense. It takes a couple of seconds for your vision to return, and do remember to breathe normally throughout. Any questions for me? No, that's all good. So the G's coming on in three, two, one, now. Ho, ho, ho! Good. Keep breathing normally. Muscle tensing for me, Matt. <laughs> Keep that muscle tensing going. G's coming off, rolling out, 
keep the muscle tension to the wings are level, please. So, Matt, just from your facial expression and your posture, I imagine that you did get some light loss there. What was it like? Yeah, just a, a bit of sort of uh, losing colour, maybe a bit. Just a bit sort of, yeah, just a bit uh, desaturated, maybe. Yeah, yeah, lots of, lots of colour saturation. And what was the response to the muscle tensing when you started doing it? It started to ease, but only when I did it properly. Okay, good. So we're already beginning to think about which muscle groups we need to... Um, kind of recruit in order to achieve that solid muscle tensing but that's really good so that's a nice demonstration of your light loss we'll move on okay so this time we're asking you for that proactive muscle tensing so muscle tensing on Simon's t of two think about how you're generating that muscle tensing with symmetrical pressure against the rudder pedals curling your toes maybe squeezing the air out of an imaginary basketball between your knees clenching your bottom and bringing in your abdomen as well. So that's a nice solid muscle tensing which we want you to sustain throughout the G, which is going to be 4G for 15 seconds. Okay, no, lot to remember, but I'll try, and, I'll try and make sure I do. Honestly, at this point, all I was focused on was trying not to black out. I was facing 4G in the centrifuge. If you do get any light loss, try increasing the tension in your calves, thighs, bottom and abdomen. No, that's all good. I've controlled tensing on the turf too. So the G's come on in three, two, one, now. Breathing normally, thinking about how you're generating that muscle tensing for me, Matt. <laughs> uh, keep it going. G's coming off, we're rolling out. Keep the leg tensing on until the wings are level. Uh, well done, Matt. Uh, any light loss for you in that? No, not that time. That was good. That was a bit, yeah, that was, uh, that was good. Uh, good. Would you like to go a little bit further and build in the breathing straining bit? It would be rude not to, surely. Okay, Matt, so this is your first attempt at a full AGSM. Um, that includes uh, not only the muscle tensing, but also the breathing straining. So we're going to inch the G up to 4.2 for 15 seconds. So muscle tensing on the t of two. Use the one to take a preparatory breath in, and then use your first breathing strain on the N of now, and that's a forceful breath out against a closed windpipe, held for three to four seconds with a quick air exchange between each of those. Yeah, I hope you're following all that as well. <laughs> Basically, I had to do all of that at once. Tense my toes, my knees, my legs, my calves, my bum, my stomach, and do the breathing, because the G is going up to 4.2 now, and if I don't do that, I'm going to black out. Go, Fido. Go, Guide. Go, Control. Go, Telcom. Go, Gincy. Go, Ecom. Go, Surgeon. Go. So here we go. So the G's coming on in three, two, one, now. Uh, exchange after three seconds. Matt. So what's happened here is I've forgotten to breathe out. Here I'm sort of panicking a bit. <laughs> but trying to remember to do those sharp breaths so that I don't lose consciousness. G's coming off for rolling out. You can breathe normally now, but keep the legs tensed until the wings are level. Good level of grunting there, we like that. Doc, you have control. I have control. Uh, nobody wants to hear that on the radio, do they? It's very hard not to grunt up here with you, actually. Um, <laughs> how was that, Matt? Uh, it, was, it was good. I felt like I was. there was a lot to think. It's only tightening my bum and breathing but it, was, it felt like a lot to think about do you want to go a little bit further yeah good okay so we're only going to inch the g up to 4.5 oh this is the full whack this time uh, 4.5 it will be yep okay this is what i've come for 
Okay, catch your breath uh, and let me know when you've got the energy to try 4.5G for 15 seconds with both elements of the anti-G strainer maneuver. Okay, yeah, let's do it. Three to four seconds with the breathing strain, nice short air exchange over a cycle of no longer than a second. And if you start to get any light loss, um, just increase the tension in your legs, um, bottom and abdomen. Yep, all clear. Yeah, G's coming on in three, two, one, now. And here comes the weird breathing. Good, keep that going, keep the muscle tensing going, Matt. Juice coming off, we're rolling out. Breathe normally now, but keep the legs tensed until the wings are level. <laughs> well done, Matt, that was very, very nice indeed. Any light loss for you? Uh, no, that felt like a longer time than however long it actually was. <laughs> So then they got me to try and fly the plane as well as doing all of the tensing and the breathing to try and not black out. And, listener, I wasn't very good. Stop that bank. Oh, oh, oh. Let's just roll, roll the wings level a bit. Let's <laughs> reset it up. So roll wings level. Just ease the nose back up to the horizon. Oh, dear. So what you did wrong there is you just um, forgot to stop rolling. I did everything. <laughs> So it's a it's a it's a classic mistake. Ended up upside down. Right. That's good. And just gently push the stick forward. <laughs> oh, Where I'm you, a terrible you've gone pilot. To red I'm a terrible pilot. I'm upside down again. Yeah, that's right. So just hold it there. Don't let it roll. Stop the roll. And that was very good. Well flown. <laughs> uh, you're being overly polite, I think. But anyway, that was fun. That was good. I mean, at one point, yeah, I was upside down. Another time it went so badly, uh, we had to stop and go back to the beginning. The idea of doing all that tensing and breathing while locked in, a, whether it's a dogfight with an enemy aircraft or piloting a rocket to the moon, is so inconceivable that anyone would ever be able to do that. I'm beginning to wonder if the whole thing might well be a hoax. The way that G-force comes on, first of all, like a heavy duvet, and then it's like a heavy child jumps on the bed, followed by the whole family and then the dog and the wardrobe, and then if not the roof, then a good chunk of the ceiling really sort of weighing you down, and you're trying to sort of force it off just with your the power of your muscles and your breathing. Uh, all of that, combined with the fear of blacking out, means it's just physically and mentally exhausting. I couldn't even grip the lock on my harness when I came to get out of the cockpit, and I stepped out just feeling very hot. Apparently that's down to the adrenaline. Let's be honest, something that nobody's really experienced a huge amount of in the past. Yeah, I had a bit of a wobble on the step. Now, I know that, you know, collapsing or something would have been a great way to have rounded this all off, but I was determined to sort of stay upright, clutching my stick bag and trying to stand up straight, keen to avoid the fate of the Blue Peter presenter, who, on a recent visit, apparently was sick everywhere. I did have to just go and sit quietly somewhere and contemplate the fact that, despite my high hopes... The closest I'm going to get to a rocket man is being a big fan of Elton John. Well, there you go. That's what happened when I went into space. God, we've had so many messages. Liz says, blimey, Matt sounds worse than the breathing I had to do giving birth. <laughs> um, lots of you want it. Now, if you want to see the video of me going into space. Uh, it's on the Times website now. The Art of Spin. It's Matcholi versus G-Force. You can go online and see the video of uh, that right now. Well, I've been asking you all morning for what, what's the one thing you'd take with you into space? Scofie. Tim says, 
I'd take a pair of nutcrackers so I wouldn't have to break the walnuts with my bottom, as described by Space Cadet, surely. Oh, it, I'll tell you what, it was so complicated. I did genuinely... Th- All I was worried about was not blacking out. And if you want to apply to go into space through the European Space Agency website, just search European Space Agency Astronaut Application online. And as a bonus, I've also been speaking to two actual astronauts. Clayton Anderson took 15 goes before NASA accepted him. And Chris Hadfield was the first Canadian in space. He uh, commanded the International Space Station and he also recorded Space Oddity while up on ISIS. So this is what happened when I spoke to uh, Chris Hadfield and Clayton Anderson. Let's start with Chris Hadfield, the first Canadian to walk in space. Uh, you've flown two space shuttle missions, served as commander of the International Space Station too. Chris, let's go right back to the beginning, first of all. How did you become an astronaut? Was it a childhood dream? Was it something you just fell into? How did it happen? I, I know of no astronauts who fell into being an astronaut. It's uh, it, it, the competition is so high that that it's uh, it's it's not an easy uh, destination to get to. But uh, I uh, deliberately decided to turn myself into an astronaut on July twentieth, nineteen sixty nine, when Neil and Buzz walked on the moon, and, and Mike Collins, who just passed away, when uh, when he was orbiting the moon. That that act of human. Uh, bravery and um, accomplishment, I just found immensely inspiring. And I thought, if that is a life choice that's available to me, I want to do that. What do I need? What do I need to do? How do I change myself? And so I started uh, training to be an astronaut the summer that I turned 10. Okay, now let's bring in Clayton Anderson, who took 15 tries at realizing his dream of becoming an astronaut. Uh, Clayton, where did that dream come from? The Apollo 8 astronauts were going to go behind the moon for the first time in human history. And my mom and dad got my brother and sister and I up and we sat on a wood floor in front of a black and white TV in my hometown of Ashland, Nebraska. And we watched these guys go behind the moon for the first time. And that's what I remember. Uh, But my mother would have told you that I was six years old and that we discussed that I would one day be an astronaut. I was pretty much a realist for the first I don't know, 12 years or so when I applied, I was pretty much a realist thinking that I haven't contributed much. I haven't done anything special. I'm not a PhD. Uh, I'm not a military jet fighter pilot. Uh, I haven't invented or discovered a new element or invented a new device. Um, I was just working hard, doing my job. And in year 13, my wife and I had gone off to Seattle, Washington to look for work, thinking that, hey, we'll just relocate. I'll be done with this astronaut thing. It's obvious that they don't want me. Um, But then when we came back from Seattle, uh, I got a phone call and they asked me to come to my first interview. Well, now, hey, they're going to interview me. Oh my God, I'm excited. And I went and I failed again. But my fire was relit, right? My flame was glowing brightly again. And I thought, well, I can try this for a few more years, which I did in year 14. They didn't select any astronauts. Uh, Year 15 then, I got my second interview, and that was the year I got selected. So, uh, you know, people say I was persistent. (laughs) Some might say I was stupid uh, to continue to go that long with no hope, but I wore them down, and in year 15, they selected me, and I don't, I don't really know why. Um, 
good looks leaps to mind right away. <laughs> but I think that I worked hard. I did my job to the best of my ability. I stayed with it. And then ultimately I was fortunate enough to get selected. For Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield, the same was true. Having the dream was one thing. Realising it is quite another. There, there's no, absolutely no way to ensure that you're going to get there. Uh, and I recognise that right from the outset. And, and so I thought, OK, uh, let's do the stuff that sounds like fun, that, that may be like you in a centrifuge. Let's do the things that sound like fun, but that will also start gaining me some of the skills that if Canada, where I'm from, ever says, hey, we're going to hire astronauts, maybe they'll spot my hand sticking up higher than everybody else's. So I, I just started looking at it and researching it. And astronauts had to scuba dive as part of their spacewalk training. So, okay, I'm going to swim and I'm going to learn how to scuba dive. And astronauts fly in space. And I don't know at what point it occurred to me, but anything that's a verb, I could probably learn how to do that verb, you know, and I can fly, you know, they know how to fly. They didn't, they weren't born that way. So I joined the air cadets and, um, and got my glider pilot's license and then my powered license. And, um, and then I thought I'm going to need more than that. And so I took courses in high school that would lead me to go to university. And then I went to eventually four different universities and, and I became, I joined the air force and all of those, were very aware of the fact that I'm never actually going to be an astronaut. But but if I don't do these things, guaranteed, I'm not going to be an astronaut. So let's do the things that marry up the stuff that excites me and thrills me and challenges me that, that also try and shepherd my life along in the direction of the things that I'm dreaming of. And incredibly enough, it was in the adverts of the papers across Canada, and I applied. And it wasn't millions, as you say. It was 5,300 people that applied. But I got picked and then served 21 years as an astronaut. Clayton Anderson, having wanted to be an astronaut for so long, what was the moment that you realised you'd actually made it? I got a phone call and it said, please report, can you report to Ellington Field, Hangar 273, on this day at this time. So I go out and I get greeted by a guy who knows my name. He says, hey, Clayton, how you doing? And, and it turns out his nickname is Sarge. And he takes me to a break room. And in this break room, it's just a messy little room with a wooden picnic table in the middle. And he sits me down at the picnic table and he says, hold on, I'll get your stuff. And he comes back with a big old green army duffel bag. And he plops that duffel bag down in front of me on the picnic table. And he unzips it and he starts taking stuff out. And he said, here's your kneeboard. Here's your flashlight. Uh, here's your, uh, your, your jacket. Here's your boots. Here's your flight suit. And he said, when the flight suit came out, he said, you need to try this on. And so he gave it to me and he walked out of the room and there was a big full length mirror across from the picnic table. And I put this flight suit on. He already had my name tag Velcroed to the flight suit and it said JSC astronaut or something on there. And I'm standing there in this flight suit that fits me perfectly looking at my full length body in this mirror and that's when I kind of lost it I thought oh my god I'm a United States astronaut hey Chris Hadford when you were in space you not only had fun you went viral back in a time when people didn't always do that uh, with your recording your cover version of Space Oddity recorded in space is now being viewed by millions and millions of people around the world how important is it how easy is it to have Fun when you're on the International Space Station? Well, the most fun thing about space flight, I think, uh, just from a raw physical experience, is being weightless. 
Weightlessness is a superpower. And I don't know what superpower you'd like to have, Matt, but if someone could just touch you on the head and now you could fly effortlessly everywhere that you go, that's a cool thing. And, and you're like that forever on a spaceship. So, um, But you're also living in a very weird set of circumstances, physically isolated, surrounded by danger. You can never go outside. I mean, it's the ultimate uh, pandemic quarantine. Every All of your relation with everybody except your tiny little crew is virtual. And you never know when it's really going to be over. So it's quite psychologically demanding to live on board a spaceship. And so our psychologists work really hard to, to make, to ease the burden. And so there's a great electronic and, and even a, a small paper library up there and a great collection of, of music recordings. And, and they put a guitar on the space station. And I knew there was a guitar up there and I've always been a musician and I've fronted bands, you know, for most of my life and written music. And I thought, I'm going to try and write music and record up there. My son sent me an email and he said, hey, dad, I've been looking at all your social media accounts and they want you to do a version of David Bowie's Space Oddity. Do it. And I was like, nobody covers David Bowie. Give me a break. I mean, you can't cover Bowie. I'll, I'll just cover Bach while I'm up here as well. You know, it's not going to work. Um, but he said, uh, do it or you'll regret it for the rest of your life. Okay, I'll try and squeeze it in. And uh, and then I, I didn't know the song. I had to learn it up there on the guitar late at night. And there's no, you know, NASA uh, and all the other space agencies, they prescribe your schedule extremely rigorously. And nowhere there does it say, learn a new song and record it. You know, that. so that had to be done when I was supposed to be asleep. But I stole a little bit of time after the lights were out and learned Oddity. And then initially I just did a karaoke version with David singing in my ear and then doing a, you know, floating a microphone and using GarageBand. Um, and then once I had a vocal recording, I was like, oh, that sounds better than I thought it would. Bowie was a genius. He really got a feel of this place and he'd never been here. And, and then my son weighed back in, Evan weighed back in and said, you're in space, Dad. You're weightless. You got to make a video of yourself singing it. So I said, ah, I'm, I'm commanding a spaceship. I'm busy up here. But um, but I, one Saturday for an hour, I, I floated around singing along with that recording of my own voice. Um, and and I was just amazed. As you said, it went viral. Hundreds of millions of people have seen that recording. Bowie himself loved it, said it was the most poignant version of the song ever done. Did you get, so, did you get to speak to him? I, we just uh, electronically, but but I do I play with his band with with Mike Garson and Earl Slick. I tour with his band now, which is they were like his family, you know. So it's been very lovely getting to know uh, the guys, you know, that he played with for forty years. Yeah, that's a, that's an a incredible incredible story. Looking into the future now, there's obviously sort of renewed interest in space. The space tourism is happening more private and public collaboration other countries getting in on the act what for you is the most exciting thing where would you most like to go if they called you up and said look you can go back to space one more time where do you want to go is it the moon is it mars uh clayton anderson where would you most like to go i think i would choose the moon and i would choose the moon because it's only three days away if i could go to mars and use the space or the star trek transporter beam 
and I could go to Mars for a few days and then come back, I might choose that. But that's a six to nine month journey just to get there. And I'm not up for that. Uh, family has sacrificed enough for me. So if I could go back into space, I would love to go to the moon for a short period of time and actually live and work there. Um, and I think it's smart that we're going there now because in my mind, coming from a farm community as a kid, I understand the infrastructure and the technology that's required to turn a dirt field of 30 acres into a corn producing uh, feeding entity for humans and animals or whatever. And that infrastructure development is what we don't have yet. And I think that going to the moon only three days away allows various companies, various entities that have expertise in this area to design and build things that might take that ice from the lunar uh, polar caps and convert it to actual drinking water that an astronaut can drink. Same question to you, Chris Hadfield, really. What's exciting you most about what's happening in uh, space exploration right now? It's the opportunities that are coming because of the improvements in technology. You know, since Sputnik first flew in 57 and then Gagarin in the spring of 61, the technology has gotten so much better. I mean, it was crazy dangerous to fly, even on my first space flight. The odds were one in 38 of dying in the first nine minutes. One in 38, you know, try and buy life insurance at those odds. Um, <laughs> It has gotten radically better. And that technology now opens up those other opportunities that you just talked about that they've never really been open before. Space tourism, where later this year, four people who are not astronauts by themselves are going to get into a SpaceX capsule and orbit the world for three days and then land again. That's happening in September. So space tourism is happening now. Um, so that we are now about to get to that stage in history where we live in on more than one uh, place, not just Earth, where we become multi-planetary. The moon has unknown, enormous, untapped resources. We, we've just scratched the surface in a couple places. And, and so we have a real interesting opportunity. How are we going to settle other planets? You know, the people on the space station live by different laws. And what laws will we live by as we start to settle the moon? Can we actually deliberately think about evolving our whole geopolitical models instead of not just the technology and what resources exist on the moon and then eventually mars but our ships aren't good enough for mars yet they're getting there better than they've ever been but mars is further away than most people think the moon is much more doable but to me that's that's all happening all of that enabled by our own inventiveness and technology that's what excites me so that was the amazing Chris Hadfield, the first Canadian in space. Before that, we also heard from Clayton Anderson, who was rejected 14 times before finally being accepted uh, by NASA. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times Radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 